For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. It's time for our writer to the Hebrews to bring a four-chapter theme to a close. He does this by saying that in light of all Jesus went through on our behalf, we ought to respond in three different ways. These three exhortations have life-changing potential. So let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, A New and Living Way. All righty, let's get started. We are going to pick up In chapter 10, where we left off there at verse 19 of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, where we are making our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your presence here. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit into our hearts to open the eyes of our understanding so we can make sense of your truth. And most of all, Lord, to understand it and apply it to put it into practice in our lives, Lord. Help us to recall it and to apply it. In Jesus' name, amen. So this guy walks into a bar. (laughs) And he orders a beer, and immediately he throws it in the bartender's face. Well, you know, he says, oh, man, I'm so sorry. He grabs some napkins and apologizes profusely. You know, he says, I've got this terrible compulsion. I've got this problem. I don't know how to fix it. You know, I fight it, but I don't know what to do about it. He says, you know, you better get help. You didn't get hurt, you know, and I'm never going to serve you here again. Now, a couple months later, the guy goes back into the bar and sits down, and the bartender recognizes him. But he promises the guy on the stool, no worries, I've been seeing a psychiatrist. The problem is solved. The bartender goes, okay. (laughs) And serves him a tall mug of beer, which the man takes right away and splashes it into the bartender's face. Astonished face, I should say. Said, I thought you said you were cured. Yelling at this guy. And he says, Well, I am. I, I still do it, but I don't feel guilty about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> the, wor- the world and the word have different ideas about what it means to be guilty and how to solve our problems. And this joke is not as far-fetched as you think. I was at a men's conference 20 years ago. The speaker told a story about when he was a young man, he had a nervous breakdown. He was living a double life. He was being sexually immoral, and he had a horrendous problem and obsession with pornography. Well, he had a breakdown. He just couldn't function. He was losing his job and his marriage and his mind. And so he went to the psych ward. And he sat down after one of those terrible nights there. And he sat down for his first interview with the psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist said, just tell me a little bit about yourself and what the major issues are. And so he just said, you know, well, first of all, it all started when I was a teenager with this obsession with pornography. And so the guy says, and pornography is wrong? He goes... He told the audience, I knew it was going to be a long 72 hours in there, you know, and pornography is wrong. So let me understand. So pornography is a bad thing. Yeah, it's a bad thing. Well, see, what he was going to suggest and what he tried to do is to desensitize him to the guilt he was feeling about just simply a biological function. A thing that is normal for guys to do. Well, normal for guys to do and what God requires of us are two different things. So you don't fix the problem by how you feel about what you're doing. And that's the whole point. God sent his son into the world not to give us a way to excuse away uh, our guilt, 
but to give us a way to remove our guilt and look to the cross and what he did for us and, and, and how he changes the problem and it changes our behavior, which affects how we feel about ourselves. You know, if you want to fix your self-esteem, uh, let the Lord help you to change the behavior of your life. And then you'll have better self-esteem. Let's pick up now with verse 19. Therefore, in light of what I've been saying for four chapters, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, talked a lot about that in the temple, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, well, that is his body, and since we have a great priest, the mediator, over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who has promised is faithful. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So this is going to be our text. This is as far as we get uh, this morning because it's packed with a lot of things. In fact, <clears throat> he sums up in just a sentence or two what he's been saying for four chapters, the same idea. And then he's going to give some practical application, applications. You see the let us five times. You see let us, let us, let us, let us, let us. So, uh, of course, uh, a sermon is worthless if it doesn't call somebody to response. In fact, faith is worthless unless there's the response of good works. If there's no good works, the faith is dead. And so I think it's a good idea to kind of walk through this, milk it for all it's worth, and see. Because here's what he's saying. Since you've been listening and learning for four chapters, this is the kinds of behavior you ought to be doing as a result of learning. And so we're going to just hang out here, and I'm going to leave it up here and we're going to just reflect upon these wonderful truths. So the first one is that before I tell you, come on, let's press in to know the Lord better and all of these applications, I just want to remind you why, again. Why? Well, number one, the guilt is gone. Uh, it's not just covered up, it's removed. He's changed us. Whoever's in Christ is a new creation. It's a new creation. It's a supernatural thing. You didn't just start to become religious or something. Somebody got a hold of you and changed the way you think and actually changed, big word, ontologically who you are. I mean, the essence of who you are is changed in Christ and the guilt is gone. So the problem that caused the guilt has been dealt with once and for all and that is our sins and our sin nature. So this is the good news. Now, he's going to say here and imply, as we've been learning, that the good news was not fully realized. It could not be fully realized under the old covenant uh, because the Messiah had not come. The old covenant just pointed out, you have a problem and you need a Messiah. That's the teaching phase of salvation was the old promise. The old promise looked forward to the good things to come. Now, he's writing to Jewish Christians who are really hurting, and uh, they're having a hard time living the Christian life, and so they think, well, maybe if we just give up on this Jesus and go back to Judaism, uh, things will be better. Yeah, you know what? They will. When you go backwards from the thing that's causing you the problem and stop doing the thing that is causing you the problem, there's some temporary relief. Except, of course, if that was Jesus that was causing the problem, and then you back away from Jesus and the truth because it's easier on you in a Christ-rejecting world, then you, you've made a terrible trade. You've traded in the truth and God and your Savior and forgiveness of sins so that you won't be mocked or, or uh, marginalized or persecuted. That's a bad trade. And so he doesn't want them to do that. The old covenant was in place for 1,400 years, and it, all it did was kept 
pointing to a sacrifice that had to be better than the blood of bulls and goats. The old covenant said, do this or die. And that's why Jewish worship had to involve blood because they couldn't do it. They couldn't keep the commandments. So if you want to approach when the old covenant says do this or die, well, then you need to have proof that something has died in your place to cover the sins you've committed so that you can have fellowship with God. That's the old covenant. They're going to go back to that, to pointing forward to empty ceremonies that are only fulfilled in the Jesus that they have as Christians. The new covenant, of course, the new arrangement is called grace. And it says instead of do this and die or die, it says trust Christ and live. That God did what we were powerless to do in ourselves. He says, I did it for you by my sacrifice. Come to me. I am the true lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the writer's been hammering this truth that Jesus has done it all. He takes away our sins. He changes us from within. He's greater, superior, and better than anything in the past, whether that past is Judaism or whether that past is whatever it is in your past. What you have in Christ is far superior to anything you could ever retreat to. Amen? And so really, to paraphrase this, he's just saying, let us confidently approach God now in light that our sins are forgiven. He's not mad at us and everything's paid for. Let's keep drawing close to him. Let's maintain our Christian profession just means, hey, you, you've told everybody, I'm a Christian. Now maintain that, live it, continue to live that way uh, in, in spite of whatever it is. And then he says, and let's help one another by meeting together consistently for mutual encouragement because the day that we're waiting for is going to come sooner than you think. And so that's really the gist of it. Let's kind of walk through it. So before we're given the three action items, he sums up what he's been saying for four chapters. Since God took the trouble to open the door to heaven, why don't you come on in and enjoy him? He's done all of this work on your behalf so why don't you take advantage of it and come into the very presence of the Lord and the throne room of God. Now, uh, there's a reference there to the curtain, right? Now, we've talked about that curtain um, because there's a new and living way open through that curtain. And that curtain was in the, hung in the temple. And as you will recall, it was no little curtain. It was 60 feet tall, 30 feet wide four inches thick, and it took 300 priests to manipulate it. So says Josephus. Oh, it was a big deal. And that symbolized, I call it the curtain of death because it's saying death means separation. You are unholy and sinful. Something has to be done to bridge that gap. And right now your sins have separated you from God. 1,400 years of reminder. Nobody can come back here except one guy one time a year. And he's, uh, his, his entrance is safeguarded only through blood that he's holding for his own sins, right? So there's a problem. You don't want to go back to that, especially when a new and living way has already been open. And how did that open? Well, and when Jesus died, quoting from Matthew 27, when Jesus had died, he, uh, rather, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit and died. All that, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split apart. So the second Christ dies and says it's finished, the word means paid for as well. This, this humongous curtain splits from the top to the bottom. God is just screaming to the whole world, come on in. Everything's good. I see no fault in you. It's been paid for. He didn't just wink. He actually took it, took everything from you, lifted it off of you in some God supernatural way and put it on his son and then struck his son for you, your sake. 
So now you have a, a great high priest, the mediator, this wonderful uh, advocate who's on your side. Um, the, the, um, and, and I'll have a picture of that just to, to help us there. I mean, just an incredible act. Come on. I mean, there are so many uh, fulfillments of what the Bible said would happen. And on that great day, to have that happen at the moment he says it's finished and gives up his spirit. You know why it's phrased he gives up his spirit? Because God can't die. He dismissed, in the Greek it says he dismissed his spirit. He's in full control. It was time to die and he's like, okay, now I die. For the sins of the world. It's just an awesome thing. And he's saying, come on in. Anybody, anytime, for any reason, for for." no matter who you are or what you've done. And that really includes the worst criminal that you can imagine has access. Why? Because Jesus became that. And if there's general repentance, genuine, I should say, then they are allowed to come on into the new and living way. Thank you um, for that image there. Now, he says... It's a new and living way, open for us through the curtain. And he goes, oh, oh, that is his body. Wow. He's saying, oh, oh, you know, it's not about the curtain that opened up and you get to slip in. But you know who that real curtain is that got torn open so that you can go in? It's actually Christ's sacrifice. In, in fact, let me uh, give you a graphic picture of what he means that it, a new way was open, was torn. This is what he's saying. He's saying that is his body, a new and living way. How can a way, he's talking about a hole into uh, the presence of God, as it were, the holy of holies. How can that way be new and living? And by the way, the word in the Greek for new and living, the word for new is freshly slaughtered. It means freshly, recently killed or freshly slaughtered. So he's saying to people who understand the other nuance of that word, we, we have this living way that was split open for us. He goes, uh, the curtain, uh, the body of Christ. So when you come into the presence of God, it was made possible. That door is alive because it's him. He is the door. And what does he say in John chapter 14 and verse 6? Uh, Philip is saying, I don't know where you're going. We don't know where you're going. You keep saying you're going away. We don't know. He says, you know, follow me. Well, how can we follow you if we don't know the way? He says, I am the way. If you know me, you've come in. You've come into the very presence of God and look at how reassured you should be. You're coming in through that on your behalf. Should you be worried about any of your sins or your nagging conscience or you're feeling weak about something that you've done or think you are bubbling up from your sinful nature that God would reject you for? You come to God through that and that is you. Those are your sins. He is paying for and his flesh is torn and you come in through that. That's a guaranteed thing that makes you. It, it should, and, and here's the deal. It's one thing for you to be saying, oh, I'd like to go to heaven. I'd love to love God. I want to be there and all of that. It's him saying to you, I love you so much. I'm inviting you to come in. It makes me happy to see you. I want you here. That's a whole nother deal for me. That changes the way I approach God because it's not me like, oh, I hope, you know, yeah, no, 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 no. I, I understand that we should have humility when we approach God, but he says boldly and confidently come in at my invitation because I pay for everything that would hinder. Every last thing that makes you want to drag your feet and go, oh, he goes, look, you're coming through. Something that's been paid for. Through a new and living way. What did, John, what did Jesus say in John chapter 10 and verse 9? He said, I am the door. Whoever comes in through me is going to find a really nice place. He called it a pasture, green pasture. And so he says, we need reassurance. He says, well, you know, I could go on for this. But, you know, on the night he was betrayed, he takes bread. 
And he goes, this is my body. Broken. Broken for you. It's one seamless story from the beginning. From when Adam and Eve sinned and they don't have fellowship with God. They're outside the curtain and he's hiding behind a tree with his wife. And the Lord says, where are you? As if he didn't know. He's saying, Adam, let's talk about this. Once he's reconciled, how is he reconciled? He's reconciled and what covers his shame but the slaughter of animals in the garden of paradise. Blood falls to the ground in Eden. That was horrific. Adam and Eve were, were mortified. This is Eden. You know, things don't die. Things aren't killed. There's no bloodshed. There is for the skins that will cover your shame. Right from the beginning, taking away the reasons we would hide and not want to come in. Right from the beginning. Blood, something, something died so that you can be covered. Right from the beginning. There it is, the cross. The animal that was slain was not bulls and goats and all kinds of things. It's God himself coming down and saying, tear me, tear me in half. And they'll come in through that. That's a secure passage. So don't be telling me that you don't know if you're saved or you don't know if God can forgive you. Please, he can forgive you. This is bigger than anything you can come up with. And it was designed to do that. So first of all, he says, thank you for that. We'll go back to the text. He says, first of all, keep drawing close to God. Keep drawing close to God. You know, your biggest reason for not wanting to do that is what? An awareness of sin. And, you know, you still have a sin nature and you still think stupid things and immoral things. And you can do it in the, in the worst possible situations. You know what I'm saying? Where you just feel, what? can I even be saved? He says he's, he took care of all of that. And, um, you, you know, no son of Adam, no daughter of Eve never need to hide from God because our shame is dealt with. And it's not just covered. It's paid for and taken away. Jesus took it away. So Old Testament worship really was about the sprinkling of blood. And so he says, listen, uh, the sprinkle of blood really has touched your heart. You can come with full assurance of faith because our hearts are sprinkled, sprinkled with his blood. Now, back in Old Testament worship, we found out, we've read earlier, that nearly everything, including the sanctuary itself, the temple itself, even the curtain itself, uh, all the instruments, everything used inside the temple, including the priests, so the bowls, the wick, the wick lighters, everything was sprinkled with blood including the priests and their clothing and the temple and the altar. I was making a point. Worship can never happen unless there's that death, right? And it's not going to be blood of bulls and goats that's going to cut it. It's going to be his. And so he says, listen, that blood of Jesus didn't just, it got to your heart. It got on the inside. That is why the metaphor of eating is so important. It doesn't mean that by taking a communion service saves you. It's a picture of getting the blood of Christ to sprinkle in your heart. He says, this is the cup, the new covenant of grace poured out for you. This is my blood. He said that the night he was betrayed, sitting there. And he says, take it and drink it. Get it on the inside, man. That's the way it's going to change. So start being religious. Just trying to do good deeds. Nothing's going to work unless you get that cross and what happened there inside of you. And the way you ingest it so that it sprinkles your heart, as it were, is by faith. Lord, I receive you. I turn from my sins. Come into my heart. And he comes in and he applies, as it were, that sprinkle. Now, not to the outside of stuff, but into the heart where that problem has been emanating from 
the source of all that wickedness and brokenness and immorality and corruption and foulness and leprosy, spiritually speaking. One drop of that blood ingested spiritually into a wicked heart makes it as white as snow. That, my friend, is the gospel. That is the good news. That no matter what I've done and how foul it is that you can't even stand the stench of your own soul, it is gone. And it smells sweet now because of what he did. It's gospel. That's the gospel. Amen. So he says, come on. You're clean. What are you dragging your feet for? Why aren't you having a better prayer time? Why don't you go on walks with him and share and pour out your dreams and your thoughts and your fears and your aspirations and your hopes? Why aren't you BFFs with him? There's nothing standing in the way of you and God being friends with his arm around you and your arm around him and you're nothing in between you. Favorite person status. He's saying there's nothing stopping that. The only thing stopping that is your awareness of the right? But the can be, sorry. (laughs) I know I'm out of control. It it happens. All the ook was placed on him. And he says, come on in here. I don't see the ook. The ook got put on him. Please believe. Let's still do the ook if we confess our ook to him. He is faithful and just to forgive us our ook and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1 9, Ross Ryman version. <laughs> the ook part, anyway. I got ook. You've got ook. We have yuckiness. There's broken everything in here. There's every sin that ever has been committed is represented right here. What hope do we have? It's that it all got lifted off of us and put on him and judged and taken away forever. That's the glory of heaven. Boy, if you just thought, hey, if I could live life with the understanding that God sees me white as snow as if I've never sinned before and there's nothing, not one thing that stands in between me and him. Oh, I would be so happy. I'd be seeing his praises all day long. I can't wait to get before him. I'd hang out with him. I'd read the word. I'd da, da, da. He says, why aren't you doing that? His blood went inside and sprinkled your heart and your soul and the fountain now that flows is clean. Yes, we know it's mixed until we see him face to face. But when we see him face to face, that fountain flows fresh. No more. You won't even th- you can't even think of things that would defile because there's no defilement in heaven. So we are perfected on that great and awesome day. So he says, listen, your bodies are clean too. This is a shout out here. Bodies washed with clear, uh, pure water. Leviticus 16. You, to go into the holy place or the temple, you had to be clean. The priest had to bathe in ceremonial ways. But he's saying... Once the blood of Christ get into your heart, <laughs> you've had a bath and a half that your bodies have been washed and clean. Now, it, it's not so much that the body, it's a shout out to ba- Christian baptism, which doesn't cleanse you from your sins. Peter said, put it this way, the waters of baptism don't intend to remove dirt from the body, but to express a pledge to God proceeding from a clear and clean conscience. And so all the baptism is, is a symbol of what went on on the inside, a washing away of our sins. I mean, the dirtiest people outwardly in Christ shine with this radiance from their face. When they're baptized in India and Africa, they take off those dirty clothes or they're still very dirty and they can be the cleanest. People, because their bodies have been washed with pure water, where it counts because inside they've been sprinkled their consciences with the blood of Christ. I'll tell you a quick story. When one of my kids was in kindergarten in public schools in San Francisco, uh, he came home and said, 
he's a bit confused. I've told you this story before. He said, uh, Dad, Imad's mom came in and explained what Ramadan was to us. He's in kindergarten. And he told us about Muhammad. She told us about Muhammad and Allah. And she washed her hands and, and opened a big book and read from it. So I called the school. And I said, uh, so I heard about uh, your speaker and the Quran and uh, Ramadan. She got Ramadan and you'll give me Easter. And I'm going to come in with a Bible and I'm going to read the Easter story as a cultural event for the children. So after arguing with her for a half an hour, I got my way. And she put it on the calendar. I went in to the classroom, gathered the kids around. The Lord was good. You know, they were all excited. I had the Bible. And I sat down and I said, kids, now, now with our book, the Bible, we don't wash our hands before we read this book because the words inside this book make us clean. Our hearts and our hands get clean after we read this book and come to Jesus. Can you say resurrection? And then you, <laughs> then you hear the whole class go, resurrection, right? And I, I, can, I just looked up and saw her with her aide in the back, huddled like, oh no, we're all gonna die. But... <laughs> Oh, it was so much fun. And later she told my wife, she ran into Barb at the grocery store, and she said, you know, I thought, fine, I'm going to let him in and turn him loose with all these kindergartners. And I was like, watch this. And I was a little surprised, Mrs. Ryman. He knows how to handle these kindergartners, and they were all on his every word. I was like, praise God. And they heard, this is Jesus. This is the cross. Oh, no, but don't worry. He died for our sins. So three days later, he rose from the dead, just like all of us can. It was amazing. It was a lot of fun. I'm telling you so that you get inspired. Maybe you'll call your school district. <laughs> see what you can do. Amen? So he says, spend time with him that means include him in your thoughts what does it mean to draw close to God anyway it, it means to include him in everything you're thinking and feeling it means to stay close to his word and keep prompting yourself oh yeah you said this and to have like a running dialogue always with your BFF God because you're clean you're as clean as Jesus. You're like hanging out with your father who spoke and made the planets. How fun is that to get out of bed in the morning too? Amen? Amen. Whoa, I need a little more pep there. <laughs> How fun would it be for you to get out of bed in the morning? Just think about this. And all your sins are paid for. And you are on track to stand before the living God and call him father. The one who spoke and the universe leapt into it existence. How cool would that be? Amen? Amen? Yeah, that's where you are. Okay, so let's look at these lettuces, all right? And it's not a vegetable stand. Lettuces, lettuce. Get it. I'm going to try it next time. Well, I'll get back to you about second service. See if... So he says, uh, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. So, so we want to keep drawing near to God and we want to keep moving forward, no matter what. No matter who's in your face, what they're saying, if you say Jesus one more time, you know. He says, be immovable because you are. God is for you. Who could be against you? Now, now, when he says, let's keep pressing forward there, when he says, here we go, let us hold unswervingly without moving, no budging, don't go back a step, no matter what's coming your way. You keep going forward to the hope that you profess. Why? Always a reason for hope. Always a reason for joy given. Always a reason for confidence. He never just says, hey, be confident. He always says, here's the reason why. Because God, who promises, is faithful. He's going to keep every last one of his promises to you. So you can chill out in the face of whatever's making you want to withdraw. He's got this. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. With God, all things are possible. You need to start 
believing that, he says. And he gives you reasons for your hope. I love that about God. You know, you don't always get that. I was, uh, as most of you know, I was sick for a long time uh, with uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. I had a bone marrow transplant. And on one of my sicker days at UCSF, uh, the hospital chaplain came by to see me to give me hope and to encourage me, except he didn't know the Lord. He wasn't a believer. He was a, Bo- a Jewish Buddhist pract- uh, practicing Buddhist, Buddhism. Now, yeah, I know. <laughs> so after a while, I get, he, he said, listen, I'm here to encourage you. I said, based on what? Tell me. Who's going to take care of my kids and my wife? Do you got a power that can reverse this? They said, if we don't stop it in 12 months, you're dead. I have a 30% chance of survival. What do you go for me? Well, you know, the energies is the universe. You know, I, I was not happy. And I was on drugs, so he got a mouthful. <laughs> Give me a reason to say, chin up. Chin up, why? Well, I'll keep you in my thoughts. Oh, thanks a lot. What does that have to? Okay, well, uh, knock on wood or cross my fingers for you. Come on, man. Give me some reason. God, who's made you a promise, is going to keep it. Therefore, he says, hey, you don't have trouble in this world. Be of good cheer. Why? Oh, because I've overcome the world. You hook up with me. Guess what? I share that benefit with you. You'll overcome the world too because I have overcome the world. Reasons, reasons, and there it is. Listen, you keep doing what you're doing. Come hell or high water because God has made you a promise and not only has he made you a promise, he's sworn by himself confirming the promise that came out of his mouth. He says, as surely as I live, says the Lord. So here's my oath. My promise is gonna come to pass. Don't you... Worry about it. So you keep on keeping on. I I read a story of a guy who was ice climbing a cliff with snow. You know, I hope he knows the Lord. But I mean, just there was an accident and he was hanging all 500 feet by the rope on this precipice. uh, And uh, he's interviewed later. It's freezing weather. He's hanging by a rope you know, and he's interviewed. He's not upset or worried during those eight hours because he says, I know how the rope was made. I know that the ice screw, I I know that everything was calculated for this very event. And so I was just like, the equipment's good. I'm going to be good. I just need to wait until rescue comes. And I started thinking, you know, it, it's not, and he's holding on, but it's not so much him holding on. It's what's holding on to him, right? That's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, yeah, you hold on, but you know what? You've you got a grip on you. You've got a grip on you that's eternal, and it's not letting go because it's eternal salvation. And then uh, lastly, he says, he wants to talk about going to church. He thinks this is a good idea. And this is one of my favorite points here. I'll let you in on a secret, he says. You will find yourself more motivated and inspired and strengthened by the coming together with God's people. You will flourish more vigorously in an atmosphere of Christian uh, fellowship. So he's saying, don't stop meeting together as some have I've been in the habit of doing. Now, what does he mean meeting together? Uh, Let's make that clear. Um, Someone has put it this way. Let me read. The writer is speaking here of the local assembly of God's people, the church. The New Testament church was always recognizable by its God-ordained leadership, always pastors or elders, deacons, called and gifted to preach the word of God, to protect the flock, to equip God's people to serve him by teaching sound doctrine. Directed by its leaders, the church comes together for corporate worship, 
and instruction and ministry to one another. Together they reach out in mission called by God to impact the world for the sake of the gospel. That is the Bible's definition of church, which he's talking about. Don't stop being a part of. Now, uh, it's important to realize that. Now, don't give up meeting together as a matter of some, but, and there are timeless reasons for that. Uh, Isolating and withdrawing for whatever reason. People just, they, they come up with their reasons and they'd rather not. Uh, spiritual immaturity or laziness or wandering or backsliding. But what I want to remind us about is, is not those kinds of things. It's the I don't need church mentality uh, and substitute uh, church with spiritual activities. And here's the part that I object to and then call it church. So let me explain what I mean. You can attend discussion groups. You can go for a walk in the park. You can take a stroll along the beach. But you didn't go to church. I don't care what you did there, how spiritual it was. You did not go to church. Was there a pastor there teaching the word of God? Every single church in the New Testament has a pastor Every single one. Find me one that doesn't. I'm going to win this argument, by the way, in case you're looking. The church has leadership. It has accountability. It has a delegated servant uh, leadership flow, right? There's corporate worship. There are things that establish a church, right? But now, today, oh, you can just, uh, listen, I had my church because I took my dog on a long walk And I had a a very healing time of prayer. You did take your dog on a very long walk on a Sunday. Praise the Lord. And you had a very wonderful time of prayer. But you did not go to church. You didn't go to church. Get that out of your mind. Because you did not go to church. I like what one writer said. One pastor. In ancient and modern times as well. Man's natural dispositions chafe at spiritual accountability. It therefore becomes tempting to replace biblical church with its, with, with its spiritual authorities and protocols for more comfortable, convenient forms that allow men and women to practice their faith as they see fit, certainly without the need to answer to anyone for their actions and without hard and fast theological Boundaries. He says, don't stop meeting at a biblical church. Right? You can supplement all you want, but you gotta have a part in a membership of a church. And why? Because you're gonna be missing out. No, because you're gonna get weak and spiritually sick, and you're gonna end up backsliding because you'll be weakened. No. Why? Because you're supposed to be encouraging people. The emphasis isn't on you biblically to go to church. It never is. It's what you bring and contribute. It's not about what you're away missing. And that's the whole point. Well, I'm okay. I'm okay. I listen to podcasts. I got a million Christian friends. It's not the problem. The problem isn't that you're going to be okay without us. It's that you were designed to be a part of us so that you can bring something to strengthen somebody else. You've got it all inside out. Of course we have it inside out because we're inside out. How else do you evaluate church service? You evaluate church service according to how, what you got out of it, which is twisted. It's not biblical. Biblical church is that you come to encourage somebody else, that you come to contribute, you come to worship, you come to give, you come to minister, you come because we need each other, right? Instead, we go home, how was church? Well, I didn't get it much out of that. So we evaluate it by what I got out of it. I didn't get much out of the worship. I, I, I didn't enjoy the message. It just didn't ring to me so what? That's not the point of you being here. 
The point of you being here is for the person next to you. There are hurting people here. There are non-Christians here. There are people in the midst of divorce here. There are people with drug addictions here. There are people caught in sexual immorality here. There are people struggling with pornography here. There are people with all kinds of problems, feeling lonely and unloved, and you're supposed to be here to find them and minister to them. Not to come in and say, oh, I hope the sermon's good for me because I really need something. That's nice, and you end up getting that as you minister, as you refresh others, Proverbs says, then you shall be refreshed. Proverbs eleven twenty five. Refresh others, but change the whole mindset about skipping. I can skip out because I'm going to be okay. What about them? What about the person you were supposed to hug and encourage and have the Bible verse for? Oh, that, that's okay. That's okay. Who cares about that? He does. <laughs> he does. He says, don't do that. You've got a job to do. Who's going to spur one another on toward love and good deeds? So, so don't pull that, as some do. Don't follow their bad habit. They're okay, right? Yeah, they're okay. Well, what about the person that they were supposed to help? Let us encourage one another. And, and more and more as you see the day coming, the day, what day is he talking about? Well, what Yates said, that one far off divine event toward which all creation moves. That's written on the, in Washington on one of the buildings there. That one far off, not so far off, apparently, anymore. Divine event toward which all, when you start seeing wars and rumors of wars, when, when you start seeing moral degeneration and spiritual deception, when, when tidal waves can come and kill 283,000 people, one wave, natural disasters, Jesus said, would be on the rise. He says, when you see these things coming and they're beheading children and chopping off Christians' heads and putting it on Facebook for everybody to see. When you see that, get to church. Be in church so that you can encourage everybody who's hurting that we'll be able to stand. When you see Israel in the land after 2,530 years out of the land, can a nation be born in one day, Isaiah asked? Yeah, the answer was yes. May 10th, 1948. She's in the land. Whoa, how'd that happen? As you see the day approaching, she has to be in the land for that end date to happen. As you see the day approaching, don't withdraw and do your own thing and go for a walk in the park. Read your Bible. Oh, I went to church today. Well, we're all sitting here. Don't do that. Am I asking you not to do that? He's saying... Lots of people do that. Stop. Can't you see what's happening? Can't you see it's coming? Now is the one ally, the only ally little Israel had, one friend in the world who'd stick up for her. Reassessing our relationship with her. You see the day? What are you supposed to be doing? Pressing in, drawing near to God holding in an unswerving way your profession and hope as a Christian no matter what, and then meeting together when the doors are open, you're there, not because you need to be there so much as that other people need to be there. Let me close with the, telling you the story of the, the poor lady. And I won't even tell you where it happened, but it was over 20 years ago. Nobody knows her. I'm in the lobby it's break time at a church Sunday morning, and a woman's just, I, I walk by her, I see her kind of funny look on her face, and I just walk by, I'm headed for coffee, and, and, and she goes, you know what? <laughs> You're the first person, 17 people walked right by me, didn't say a word. You're the first person. I wanted to say, I know why nobody's talking to you. The look on your face, number one, is a little off-putting, all right? She's standing in the lobby, building her case for this is a cold church. For whatever reason, that helps her, you know, to find a reason why she's not going to come again or whatever the problem is. 17 people just walked by me, didn't say a word to me. 
people. So, you know what? Why don't you come to church with a goal of greeting and ministering to 17 people? So that when you leave church, instead of being a self-centered, immature believer, if you are one, you could leave a mature believer who tells her husband in the car, God, answered my prayer. I prayed for 17 people to encourage. I had three Bible verses. I had somebody was crying about something. I said, can we pray? I pray. I touched 17 lives. And boy, is my heart full. That is how you leave church with a heart full. It's because you came to give. You poured out and God poured in. That's the way to do it. Not stand in the lobby and say, this is a cold church. The only reason it's cold is because you're there. <laughs> Gosh. We need to pray before I say something else. <laughs> Let's pray. Worship team, come. Here's the deal. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, listen, we're all like that. We are, who hasn't had a me moment in church where you just want to blame everybody for your troubles? Right? I heard that. <laughs> she goes, yeah, I know. I'm doing it right now. No. <laughs> oh, come on. It just takes a will to say, Father, I'm having a me moment. Fill me with the Spirit. Help me to have a right biblical perspective about why I'm even here in the first place. Give me 17 people to touch. If each one of us started this morning just a 10-second prayer on our knees in the dark and said, Lord, just give me 17 people, and you started keeping track of what you did with 17 people, every one of us, let's be, let's be more rocking than it already is because it's called the rock, so it would be rocking, whatever. Don't shake your head like that. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that there but the grace of God go all of us. We are all like that, Lord. We all just want to get what we need. Get in, get what we want, and get out. But Lord, that's not how you are. You did not come to be served, but to serve and to give your life away. Help us to be like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org or find us on Facebook. These podcasts are also available in video format on our Calvary Chapel The Rock YouTube page.